Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Professor Morgan Tulte about their new book, Night of the Living Res. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you for having me, for Christina. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about your beautiful book. Before we dive into that, though, will you please tell listeners about yourself? Um, yeah, so I um, was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I moved to Maine when I was about six with my mom, and I grew up on the Penobscot Indian Nation, um, Penobscot, and um, I've been in Maine pretty much my whole life. I went to school out in New Hampshire and found my way back here and have been writing um, for the past about 10 years um, and teaching various jobs and doing what I can to <laughs> keep my writing going and keep to keep that space available. Um, so, yeah. One thing we love to know about here on the Academic Life is people's own journey through higher ed. So when you were thinking about going to college, what inspired you to go and what did you think you would study? I don't know what inspired me to go, to be honest. <laughs> I was not a good student in high school. Um, and when I graduated high school, I went to a community college for three years and it was there that I kind of just, I think being away from home and not really far away, um, I was just, you know, 10 miles away, but being out, being away from an environment that hadn't really been the best environment opened my eyes to academia and literature. And, you know, I always loved storytelling and, um, I started to fall in love with books. I was never really a reader growing up. Um, but I love stories. Um, I loved hearing them. I loved telling them. And, you know, I sort of was like, Oh, well, I guess I'm going to be a writer. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a writer. And I was so stubborn and arrogant as to what that entailed that, um, by the time I realized how difficult it can be, it was already too late for me. <laughs> so I was like, I got to keep going with this. Um, but yeah, I went to a community college for three years, like I said, and I transferred to Dartmouth college, um, where I did four years and majored in native American studies. And then I did my master's of fine arts at the stone coast low residency MFA program out of the university of Southern Maine. Um, and I feel like, you know, I chose to do an MFA because I wasn't sure what I was going to do with, with, with my life. Um, you know, and it gave me time to write, um, and to continue working on my, on my, uh, prose. And, you know, it's there that I, uh, really put together Night of the Living Res, which is the story collection that's out now. And several of the chapters of Night of the Living Res started as, or at least they first appeared as uh, short stories in various literary magazines. When you were writing this, did you imagine it as a whole book or did it just sort of come to you piece by piece? Um, piece by piece. Like I had no idea the book would end up the way it did when I started. I had no idea the book would end up the way it did when I finished the first draft. Um, you know, I actually wrote the title story, Night of the Living Res, in 2015, way be- two years before I had I'd even thought about writing a story collection. Um, and, you know, when I went into my MFA program, I'd had a couple stories written from David's point of view, who's the main character in Night of the Living Res. And I was like, oh, I'll write a story collection. And so 
I was like, I want to write, you know, stories that stand alone, stand by themselves. And the only parameters I set was sort of like, okay, how about if I start, how about I start with David as a young boy and then move all the way until he's a young adult and night of the living res. And I wrote like 15 stories, um, all told from David's point of view. And I finished it and I was like, this is terrible. Um, it was, you know, the stories, some of the stories were good, you know, maybe four or five, maybe I'm being generous, maybe three or four. Um, but it was like, the only thing that held the book together was that it moved chronologically. And, you know, story collections, you pick a story collection up and it's, you know, a cast of characters in one story. And then the next one is full of a different cast of characters and maybe a different setting and situation and and so on and so on until the collection's over. Um, but with this, you know, it was an interconnected story collection, um, because it had the same character over and over again. And when I realized it was not doing anything productive, I put it aside and, um, I wrote, burn and that's when i realized i encountered this character d who i was like is this david grown up and it sort of revitalized the whole book project for me because then the question was what happened to this boy like why is he this way and then i started writing these d and fella stories again just you know wanting to keep them individual stories not having them spill over you know um not, not having them, you know, really, ref- really be um, caught up in the other stories around them. Um, I wanted a book where you could pick up anywhere and read the story and put it down and feel satisfied. And I feel like you can to a degree. Um, but then the book got a bit more, you know, complicated in that interconnected sense. And so I really tried to nurture that as best I could. I saw this organic thread that I didn't forcibly put there. Um, it just was sort of a product of all the decisions I had made. It was sort of like the consequences. And so I just saw it through and, and I feel like I got lucky by paying attention to what these stories wanted. Um, and, you know, I had, you know, a number of agents, I was trying to get an, I was trying to get an agent to represent the book and I queried for like a year, year and a half. And, pretty much all of them were like, if you turn this into a novel, we can sell it because like, that's the thing that sells or novels. Um, and I tried to turn it into a novel, but the more I tried to do it, the more I felt the stories breaking. It was like, I was putting this certain pressure on it and it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't turn into a novel. Like I could not get it to be one without breaking the book and making it not work. Um, and so I was like, whatever, I'm not turning it into a novel. It's going to stay what it is. It's going to be what it is. If somebody takes it, they take it. If they don't, they don't. So you were writing it during your MFA program, mainly? Yeah. Yep. Did you find someone there who really got you? When, when we get vulnerable and we get into a really good story, it's so key to have somebody who gets what we're doing. Did you find that there at the MFA program or did you find mainly craft things that were really helpful for you? Um, I found both. I think, you know, I had had, you know, you know, my degree is not in, you know, creative writing or English. Um, you know, it's in native American studies, but I, I have had, a number of great teachers before I went to the MFA program. And, you know, when I went into the MFA program, I was already pretty, um, I was, my, my prose was pretty sound. It, it was, it was good. And, you know, that was echoed by my first semester men- mentor, Rick Bass. It was echoed again by him when we worked together another time. It was echoed by 
Aaron Hamburger. Um, it was echoed by Kara Hoffman. So every mentor I had um, was really invested in my work and just really committed to seeing, um, you know, my story succeed, which they thought they could. And, you know, they were offering as much help as, as possible. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I learned craft stuff, but I also, the, the people I worked with cared deeply about my writing. How did you choose that MFA program? Um, it was in Maine and it wasn't far from where, where I lived. Um, so I wouldn't have had to have booked flights to go to a different low residency program. I could just drive down from Bangor to Freeport, Maine. Plus they had a good, Those... plus they had a good faculty. Sorry to cut you off. They, they had a good faculty, Rick Bass, you know, who's a very well-known short story writer, um, Kara Hoffman. And it's just, it's a very good program. Those considerations are so important. And often people are embarrassed to admit that that was a key part of their criteria, but quality of life and logistics are a crucial part of being able to finish the program that you start. And it sounds like you prioritize that from the get-go. Yeah. And I think it's, it's an important one that I think a lot of um, people entering education should think about. Um, You know, I've, as, as a professor, you know, I've encountered so many students who have, uh, you know, I, not a lot, but a, a lot of, a, a good amount of the students that I see fail are the ones who have difficulty getting to the institution, um, whether that's because of traveling, whether that's because, you know, like they chose to go to a school that was further, farther away from where they live. Um, so, so logistics and, you know, transportation and all of that stuff, the practicality of it is like a really important aspect to think about when choosing where you want to go to school. And what the mentors are going to be when you get there, you had a sense, particularly because of the reputation of the one short story writer, that this would be a good fit for you. But it it's crucial to have people there who are encouraging you and get what it is that you're doing and your particular voice. Exactly. Yeah. So take us back to when you're querying all of these agents and they're suggesting that it be a novel and you try that and it doesn't work. Were you reaching out to your professors and getting encouragement about how to navigate the book industry? How Sometimes people are comfortable sharing how many rejections they got along the way. And sometimes people are like, it was rough. And then I got published and both are cool answers. But how did you navigate it? Um, so I, you know, I had, um, so I worked with, for my third semester, which is not the last one, it's the one before the last one, I worked with Kara Hoffman. And, you know, she read the first story I sent her. And she was like, how much of this book is done? And, you know, I told her and she was like, okay, we need to get you an agent. And um, she introduced me to her agent, and her agent just didn't know how to sell it. And she passed it around to some of her friends. So it was very like this inner circle type thing um, that you get at MFA programs that there is this, you know, connection option that that happens, but none of that really worked out. Nobody, nobody ended up taking the book on. And so I started querying agents. And, you know, my mentors helped with um, looking at query letters. Um, They also if they knew the agent or had, or if the agent knew of them in some way, you know, I would start my query letter with, you know, Kara Hoffman, who you are friends with, encouraged me to, um, write to you. Um, 
And so they gave me like little tips and tricks like that. And, but they also, you know, I think more importantly, they just outright told me that it can take a very, very long time to get an agent. And, you know, knowing that, you know, made it easier on me. And, you know, every time I got a rejection, um, you know, so, so someone would be like, oh, well, we didn't want to go with them anyways, you know, and, and, you know, they were like, we want, we want, you know, so-and-so and, um, they were, everybody was just so enthusiastic and being like, you just got to keep trying, you got to keep trying. And I did. And I, and I kept going until, um, things worked out, I suppose. You said it's a low residency program for people who may not be familiar with what that means or how that works. Can you give us a sense of that, please? Yeah. So a low residency program is a program that really attracts people who can't go to school full time. And by full time, I mean, you know, moving to a campus, living on a campus, taking classes every day and having, you know, being on that regular semester schedule. Um, But a low residency is you will go to the campus or wherever the MFA holds its its residencies. You'll go twice a year for 10 days. So at Stone Coast, um, students will go in the summer, usually in July for 10 days, and then they'll go back in January for 10 days. And those 10 days... Throughout those 10 days, it'll, it may vary from low residency to low residency, but typically you'll do two workshops, one in the first half, one in the second half. You'll attend seminars, presentations, um, faculty readings, and it, it's just full of uh, so much, you know, so much writing and reading, and, and it's just a great environment to be in for those 10 days. And near the end, you you sort of select or you fifth, think about who you might want your mentor to be in what that ultimately ends up being is you'll get a mentor assigned to you. And between your residencies, you will work with that mentor one-on-one over the course of four months. So every month you'll send a packet of material, you know, it could be 25 pages of prose and, you know, annotations in response to a reading list that you guys had compiled. And then you'll get it back with notes and so on and so on and do revision and, you know, work on your project or do new stuff. Um, So it's a very, it, it, it's a really good way to get an MFA if, you know, you are a full-time, if you have a full-time job, you have a family, you know, it, it, and it's, you know, going to school full-time again isn't a feasible thing. Like the low res is, is a good option. Is that what you did? You worked full-time? Um, I didn't at the time, no. I, I did the low res because I was tired of living in dorms and being on campus and eating in cafeterias. Um, I just wanted to like disassociate myself from that just because I had done three years at a community college and then I did four years for my undergrad. So that was seven years. And I was like, I'm tired of of this. So I'm going (laughs) to, so that's another thing. If you're tired of the regular um, traditional education format, the low res model can be a good one. When we write something, there can be a lot of, um, response from people in our personal world. And this, while it is fiction, seems to be a deeply personal book. Did you worry about how people who knew you best might receive it, that they might say, hey, is is that character based on me? Or the, how did that work out for you? Um, nobody's really... Well, you know, I went to... I went to the reservation a week ago, a week and a half ago to vote um, for the general election. And my aunt is the tribal clerk there. And she was like, uh, 
your your books to talk of the reservation. Everyone keeps asking me who's who, um, and so there is a there is a general interest in and in, you know who is who in this book. And um, I went and got lunch with my other aunt and her husband, my uncle, my uncle, and uh, they were asking too who's who. And you know, I think people close close to me know who is who. You know, in in a, in a general sense that these characters are not full representations of living people, but fragments of them. Um, and, but, but nobody's come out and been like, Hey, is this me? Or, you know, is, am I in the book? Um, and to be honest, I really don't, I don't see the book as being, you know, beyond, you know, David and Frick and mom and Paige and the dad figure. Like, I don't see anybody outside of that immediate family being any, being represented in the book in any way. One of the things you wanted to be sure that we talked about today was literature that speaks for people and making sure not to monopolize storytelling. How did those goals affect your own writing? Yeah, so they made me really consider how I worked the stories, how I chose to say things, how I chose to position things. Um, You know, I'm you know, I'm writing and, you know, I write, it's literature, but, you know, everybody will call it Native American literature. Um, and when we think about Native American literature, you know, that literature has been written mainly um, for a, a white readership or a non-Native readership. And for quite a while, and still, I'd say to this day, you know, that readership expects some sort of sense that the book they're reading is authentic based off of their version of what they think indigeneity is um, and what mainstream culture has fed to them. And so knowing that, you know, I had to do a lot of work in sort of circumnavigating that and sort of like going around, you know, feeding into what, um, you know, what readers might think is, you know, an indigenous marker, right? Like I wanted to try to avoid this question of indigeneity and authenticity. And I wanted to focus strictly on the characters. And for me, that just really meant getting at the heart of these people and not abandoning culture or language, but putting that in the background as opposed to putting it in the forefront. Um, You know, there's this quote by David, David, uh, no, who is it? No, uh, by Louise Owens, who was a uh, native scholar and uh, fiction writer. And, you know, he wrote that, you know, non-native readers of native fiction expect to go to the page and get a comfortable, easy tour of colorful Indian country. And that's something I didn't want to to give the reader. It's a, you said you wanted people to be able to read a, you know, a, a chapter, a short story in it. And, and it would be satisfying to read just um, that that one chunk. For me, uh, I had to read the whole entire thing. I had to get all the way to the end and see where you left us with David. Um, and I'm grateful now in talking to you, especially that you didn't turn it into the novel that they wanted. For me as a reader, I took each chapter as adult David taking us back and each one is a memory. Yeah. And I, I love that it was framed that way um, because you you broke our heart and put it back together again. And there was many times when I had to put the book down just because of that, but not because not because I could take each one as a short story, but because I needed to pause with it and sit with it and then keep going. Um, when we get to the very end with adult David, did you feel that you were done with the character? 
Um, with the story, the name means thunder. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I did, you know, like when I, I don't think I knew it at the time because I mean, I wrote the name means thunder before I had written, um, you know, half-life for example, which is a story that comes earlier. Um, so it was a story that had actually been written, you know, before some of the others. And, um, so it wasn't when I finished that one that I felt I was done with these characters, but when I finished putting the book together, I was kind of like, and, and you know, it was, beca- it was going to be this real thing. You know, I had this like silence in my life, like these, like the story, had, like the story of these people had stopped talking to me in a way. And I sort of took that as like, okay, either it's done for now, either it's done indefinitely or these characters will come back in my life at some point and I'll continue to write about them because I love David and, and D and Fellas, um, you know, mom, page Frick, Beth, um, you know, I think they're all fascinating and I feel like so much more could actually be done with them, but I feel like time will tell, you know, what, um, if, if that pull to the page, you know, is, is there. Is it lonely when they stop talking to you? It is. Yeah, it is. Cause you're kind of like, well, now what do I do? It's like, it's like you're in a room with a bunch of people and then they just sort of leave you and you're like, well, now I have nothing to do. <laughs> and you got to wait until somebody else comes into the room or you ask somebody else to come in the room and then you sort of, um, you know, pick up there and, and see what happens. When you were putting the book together, uh, because it does take us through child David and, adolescent David and glimpses of adult David, did it feel like there were multiple ways you could have assembled the chapter or was there kind of like a printing it all out and shuffling them around and trying it in different ways? Or did it just seem really clear to you? Like this is the order. It was, um, I'd say half was clear and the other half was unclear. Um, ordering the David stories, the one that that's told, from him, his perspective as a boy, um, that was, you almost couldn't reorder that in any way you wanted without an extensive rewrite, because those all belong to my original, um, objective, which was to tell us, tell a story collection with starting with, you know, David as a child and move until he's an adult. And so they were already ordered chronologically. So it wouldn't have been, it would have been very hard to break that and move them around. I could, I, I did, however, it was able to move around a couple of the middle stories, namely um, the blessing tobacco and food for the common cold. I think those two could, could have gone in any order, but I ultimately chose the way they appeared for some reason. I'm not sure why. Um, but with the D and Fellas stories, those ones were much harder to order um, because there were no time markers with those. You know, I didn't, when I stumbled upon D and it was like, Oh, this is David. What happened? Um, I started writing these D and fellas stories and I didn't have that parameter of age. Um, I just simply stuck to the stories. And, um, so when it came time to order them, you know, I had to think about, um, I had to think about certain, certain elements. You know, if we think about earth speak, for example, you know, um, and we think about, what happens in the end with um, D and this sort of healing that occurs, right? It's sort of like would be illogical to put that before um, the stories where he's struggling with substance abuse. Um, unless of course 
he reverted back. You know what I mean? So there was this logic, I think, to the stories, but they were um, they were harder to place. You know, I, I did print them out. I printed all the stories out and I laid all the David ones in the order that I knew they needed to be in. And then with the Dean Fellis ones, I kind of just would put one here and be like, okay, how does this feel? And I, and I'd read them and, and I'd be like, no, 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 maybe we'll move this one over here. And, um, it was trial and error until finally, um, we got it or I got it right. And, you know, it was a, it went D, David, D, David, D, David, all the way to the end. And then when Tin House bought the book, they were like, do you have any other stories we could put in here? And I sent them four. And they two were told from David's point of view, two were told from D's. And they were like, we want the two D stories, which were Half-Life and in a field of straight caterpillars. And so then I had to refigure out how do I put these, these pieces in. Um, and so that broke up the whole structure of the back and forth nature and eventually you get two d stories in a row and two david stories in a row both in david's storyline and in d's there are strong themes of substance abuse and i know um that was something we wanted us to make time to talk about today themes of substance abuse in literature especially when it's seen as a trope for specific genres and demographics yeah did you want to talk about that yeah i think you know there's you know, you pick up, you know, for the longest time, you know, you, you would pick up like a hallmark of native fiction was alcoholism, right? Like that was a trope. That was a stereotype in literature, right? Like we would pick it up and you would like nine times out of 10, there'd be an alcoholic native person in the book. Like that's just the truth. Um, and there was used to be criticism around that. You know, a lot of people used to ask native writers like, well, why are you writing, you know, this trope? Why are you writing this, this stereotype? And the response was always because it was my experience. And, um, you know, even though alcoholism in native communities is seen as a stereotype, it's a very, it's a very real issue that still persists in so many native communities, but it also persists in so many non-native communities as well. Same with, um, drug abuse is drug abuse too. And, you know, I think, you know, in this book, there's a lot of both and, you know, they come from, you know, experiencing family members who've struggled with that stuff. Um, and so they become themes, they become very real, real themes. And I think, you know, one thing I want readers to, you know, to think about is, or not well, readers to think about, but also to consider is that, you know, these, just because we're seeing it over and over again doesn't mean it's always the truth, right? There are communities out there, indigenous communities that are doing really, really great um, given all of the, the terrible history. But um, I suppose my point here is that just because we read it in a book doesn't mean it's, it's the case for, you know, every community and every tribe. And even with this book, you know, like the substance abuse issues are solely for these, these characters. It's not a community um, issue, right? Like there's no, like, this isn't a Penobscot issue. This is an individual issue with characters who happen to be Penobscot. It's a very character driven story. The whole book is very character driven. Is there one character in particular who you were, you felt the closest to that you worried over the most? I'd have to say Fellas, um, I think because he was this, you know, he's outside David's 
you know, he's, he's outside my immediate access, the narrator's immediate access. And I just like, he's such a jerk and he's such like a, like he has so many bad qualities about him, but he also doesn't. And it's like, I just like really, I don't know, like I, like I really cared about him a lot and was also very worried about him and it's actually still am in, in a way. So I guess the stories haven't stopped talking to me because I think about him a lot as a character um, and thinking about the silences in my book that are in regards to his life, you know, where he's come from, his childhood, all of these elements that we get to see from David about David, but we don't necessarily get with Phyllis. Um And, you know, I'm so, you know, the way, the way earth speak ends, like there's just this, big question mark, you know, in the way, in the same way I asked, you know, what happened to David, you know, I'm sort of left asking what happened to Phyllis. Is Paige another one who may come back to tell you more of her story? I think so, but maybe not through that same character. I think, I think Paige as, I think Paige and her, manners and attitudes and behaviors might be represented in another character and maybe like a different in a different story. Is there one character whose arc throughout the book you feel really satisfied about? Like, okay, I really feel like we know how that person ended up. I feel like I left them where I needed to leave them. I think David, to be honest, and just just because I think or I feel like I succeeded in, you know, answering this question, you know, what happened, you know, by the time you reach the final story with David um, as, a, as a boy or a young adult, and you see what you've seen, what's happened to him, or you've seen what he's become, you're kind of like, okay, that makes sense now. So I feel like that is the most satisfying um, loop for me in a way with this, with, with the, with my characters. You said they were, Two uh, chapters that Tin House sent back to you and said, we don't, we're not going to include these in the stories that are in Night of the Living Res. Have you found a home for them? Do you know what you want to do with those two chapters? Um, I, I actually believe one was published in, let me look so I'm not making this up. Um, yeah, one was actually published in the Idaho Review and it was called um, Houses. And that features uh, David and Tyson. And, you know, I can't remember what the other story was that I sent them. That was a David one. Um, It may have been one called, one that's now called The Taken, which was about um, the FBI looking for this, this person on the, Tyson's uncle on the reservation. It's really common for writers to have to cut things from their book, but not be willing to let that material go. They'll have a separate file on their computer for it. I have uh, one writer friend who uh, an entire character was cut um, because that's what the the book ultimately needed for publication. But then that character came back in another book. And um, I remember when she told me uh, that that character now had a home in another book and how happy she was and kind of triumphant. Like I knew that character mattered, but it had to be in a completely different story. Um, did you have any characters who just couldn't go into these into these stories? Um, you know, I don't. 
I don't think so. I think everybody I worked with stayed in the book. Um, but actually, you know, at some of the characters at certain ages I found couldn't stay where they were. Like I had written, you know, in the book, there's the blessing tobacco with David and, and Grammy and David's just a young boy. I mean, he's like, I can't remember 10 or um, 10 or 11 or 12 or something. And, you know, the original renditions I had written between Grammy and David when Grammy was having her cognitive decline, they were all when David was much, much older. But I found that those didn't work. So I felt that that character of David, that age, that age did David couldn't, couldn't stay there. And so I had to revert to him being younger. And I think um, that relationship that was built between David and Grammy in those older stories has become the basis for a lot of the relationship between this mother and son character I have in a, in a new book I'm working on. By making him young in that section, it, it really highlights the vulnerability and the tenderness and also the deep confusion of your loved one not recognizing who you are and you having trouble finding them in the person that you knew them to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I have had experience with, you know, my grandmother on my father's side, um, developed dementia and my, my grandmother, on my mother's side also developed, um, Alzheimer's and it's, it's such a, um, strange thing to witness when people forget, um, when people lose their sense of, current reality and everything that has led them to that point. Um, and it's just sort of an interesting thing to write about because I feel like you can sort of break away from time. And I think, you know, in the blessing tobacco, you know, it really made room to talk about or to show, you know, intergenerational trauma. You have a lot of intergenerational stories in the book, and there's a sense in the book that a lot of this is personal to you. Did you did you get to experience a lot of intergenerational interaction as yourself when you were growing up? Do you mean encounter some of the effects of it? Yeah. Um, I think so. yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I mean, we think about think about. Um, I mean, there's a number of things, you know, I'm thinking of diabetes, for example, my mother had it, my grandmother had it. And, you know, indigenous people are more prone to, to being diabetic because of um, the foods that were given to tribes um, by the federal government. Um, there's just also, I think, a lot of subconscious things that, um, you know, play a role in, in affecting and how in affecting me in, in certain ways, um, because that's how it works. It's, it's in our DNA, you know, the traumas that our ancestors experienced are passed on to us. And, um, so yeah, I, I definitely have, I think every indigenous person has. The stories that you tell have so many universal truths to them. And also you wanted us to talk about, um, the role of culture in literature, do you want to do you want to share what that means to you? Yeah, I think, you know, as writers who are, you know, writing from a marginalized group or, you know, who are BIPOC writers, you know, I think 
there's a, this expectation that we will produce work that gives, you know, the, the majority or the, you know, the, the, the white readership, some insight into this, into this culture. And a lot of people have that, you know, I remember being in college and taking a native American studies class and the instructor asked around the room to do introductions and to also say why you were taking the class. And this one person goes, I'm taking this class because I'm really interested in arrowheads. And it's like, we're not going to read anything about arrowheads in this fiction class, right? But there's this attitude that books written by minorities are going to, you know, spill all the secrets, you know, the cultural secrets, you know, the, the, the stuff that um, maybe they don't know about. And that's, you know, not always the case. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, this is, this is what I always say is it's like, you know, we, I don't think we sh- anybody should put their culture on display to get attention, but rather put the characters who live those cultures on display, right? Putting them in the position of being human and, you know, highlighting that over um, their, their background, right? Because their, their culture, if we focus on characters who are human, that experience these universal feelings, um, these universal emotions, the things that actually make us all relatives, and then insert the cultural elements, you're going to have a very true depiction of a group of people, I think, and a culture that is, act, is a, it, that a culture that is an active participant rather than a passive um, sort of statue. Writing a book and putting it out there for other people to read um, can produce a lot of mixed emotions in the author themselves. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the confusing feelings of success? Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, I wrote, I've been writing for a little over 10 years now. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't really believe in myself as a writer for a very, very long time. Um, probably not until I even sold my book, um, which was in 2020. And um, it's like, you know, the book came out and I just eventually came. I, I don't know, something, something sort of clicked. I was like, I need to separate the art I create from the business side of art and that's what i always tell young writers is it's like don't i was like oh i'm always like focus on your work and when it's ready then go into the business side where you will most likely feel (laughs) the rejection the um lack of success all of that stuff but don't let it creep into your artistic work that you're doing because the moment you do that is the moment the the work is going to be built on a sort of rotten foundation, so to speak, but I definitely experienced it. And and I still experience it when I'm in that business side of art, when I'm, you know, oh, you know, is this story good enough? Or this story comes out and I'm like, oh God, I, you know, or I read through it. I'm like, why did, why did I write it this way? You know, that, that stuff does still creep up, but I, I don't, I don't think about it when I'm working on the work itself there, you know, it's a different, it's a different space that you have to be in. Is there anyone in particular that when the book was out, you were really excited to share it with. Yeah, there were there were a lot of people. Um, you know, getting getting blurbs, for instance, from indigenous writers who I had recently read within the past, you know, three or four years. Um, you know, Tommy Orange, for example, blurbed the book, and I was so happy he read the book. You know, I was a big, I was a huge fan of there. There, um, Therese uh, Marie Mayhew, who wrote Heartberries. 
um, read and endorsed the book. I loved her, you know, her collection and, and having her endorse the book just made me feel so great. Um, Brandon Hobson, also another native writer who wrote most recently wrote the removed, but wrote, uh, where the dead sit talking, which was a finalist for the national book award. Um, you know, he had nothing but great things to say and yeah, I was very, you know, it was nerve wracking waiting to, to hear what people would say, but you know, the blurbs kept coming back good and, um, yeah, it, it made me feel really great. It made me feel like I had, I had done something right. Are you looking forward to writing the second book? I am. The second book is, um, I'm actually working on revisions right now with my, uh, editor. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I can say it tackles the beast that is blood quantum. Um, and for those of you who are may not be familiar with blood quantum, um, for tribes that are federally recognized, the federal government requires that tribes keep track of a census or have a census, have a list of who's considered a member or a citizen of that tribe. And tribes are allowed to um, create or use any method for verification, a verification that they want. Um, but the most uh, commonly used one is blood quantum. And uh, that is, you know, the census committee or the tribe will say, okay, you need to have at least a quarter blood to be considered a member or a citizen of, uh, of the tribe. And not all tribes do that. Some tribes are matrilineal, some follow patrilineal. Um, and so, um, but, but blood quantum in itself is, it, it's, it's sort of like this passive form of genocide that um, is continuing to fracture tribes and is just not a good system, but it's like also hard to not use it because there's just all of these problems that come with it. But the book is really about um, this guy who is um, non-native grew up on the res. His mom married into the tribe. That's why he was, he grew up there when he was a baby all the way until he had to move off because he wasn't native. And he ends up having a child with this uh, woman who's only a quarter blood. And in order for the child to be considered native, the mother lies and says that the father's somebody else. So it's the story of this guy trying to tell this daughter all this history and, and stuff that doesn't, that she doesn't know belongs to her, but actually does. I can't wait till that comes out. I hope you will come back and talk to us about it. Before I let you go today, um, will you tell us what you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope it gets reader. I hope it gets listeners um, buying up a bunch of indigenous fiction and nonfiction and poetry. Um, there's so many, so many good stories out there, and um, that are just you know waiting to be heard. Um, you know, a, a recent one that just came out is Chelsea T. Hicks's A Calm and Normal Heart, which is a story collection. Um, if you've not read it, go buy it, go support it. It's a great story collection. And finally, what do you hope listeners will take away? I think, um, I guess, I think I'll frame this in the sense of the book itself. You know, I think, you know, if you, if, when you, if or when you read Night of the Living Res, you know, I really hope that you can come away from the book with a greater sense of the importance of community, the greater sense of compassion we need to have for one another. Um, you know, in short, you know, how, how can we love each other better, right? How can we care for each other better? 
That's a wonderful place to leave it for today. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Professor Morgan Talty, and taking us behind the scenes of the creation of Night of the Living Res, your new book of short stories. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.